0: Islam, and uh, I'm going to change a little bit over the way I was going to do it, we were tonight, we have read a number of excerpts uh, from the material, and tonight I might do a little bit of that, but I think mostly I'm going to go back over and just uh, review what we've covered and then add some things on Muhammad in particular. And we started this study Number one, uh, because Islam is the number two religion in the world. Uh, that it, it, There are close to a million, or a million, I should say a billion, uh, people in the world uh, who claim to be of the Muslim religion. And it's also the fastest growing religion in the world. Not only that, but in the conflict that we just had in the Mideast, uh, part of our problems in that part of the world is our misunderstanding uh, of the religion of Islam. In fact, one of the things that I I think became obvious to everyone as they watched the news and seen the reports of what's going on, that the number one factor in the lives of the people in that part of the world is the Islam religion. And and we can see something of the strength of uh, brotherhood there when uh, uh, people will embrace uh, individuals that... uh, you and I find it hard to even accept, uh, simply because he's a, in fellowship with them in that in that particular religion, and and we noted that Saddam made his play all the way through on the fact that uh, the rest of the world was infidels, and he tried to call on all the people of that faith to to join together and fight. It's the number one factor in their cultural, their their morality, uh, their attitude towards life and death. Christians are not doing very good in reaching Muslims, although I believe potentially uh, they are among the best people in the world to study with. And I say that because of this very strong conviction they have about God, uh, that on a positive side, they have a very, very nobody in the world, a stronger conviction about belief in the one true God. Also, as we've already seen in the first couple of studies, uh, we have a lot in common with them. There are a number of things that we believe uh, that they already believe. In fact, they believe so many right things about Christianity and Judaism uh, that it makes an excellent starting point in, in studying with them. So because of the, the potentiality of, of reaching those people for Christ, because of the need to understand that part of the world, uh, in fact, uh, I don't believe that uh, the conflict over there will ever end except to the extent that, that more become Christian. Uh, I, I can see nothing between the, the Jew and the Muslim that can be reconciled. Uh, their, their whole attitude of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth when it comes to uh, all their transactions with one another, uh, their attitude towards the land, uh, their, their attitude towards certain material things on the land, such as in Jerusalem and around the temple, uh, make it impossible. Uh, for there to ever be any complete reconciliation of of differences. Uh, And the only source in the world, that and I think even the war thing, we've been over there and we've defeated Iraq, but we haven't changed anybody's views. Uh, All we've done is impress people with the fact that we had some very sophisticated armaments, and now you know what the number one result of that war is uh, so far? Um, it was on the news tonight, everybody wants to buy armaments from the United States. Uh, our armaments are considered the uh, Toyota uh, in, in that area. It says that so Saudi Arabia and all of those people over there are going to look to us because they were so impressed. And so we really impressed them with armaments, and we defeated uh, that country in a military <coughs> sense. But at least to this point, we haven't changed the thinking of anybody in Iraq. There is no remorseness there. There's no sorrow. There's no love for the U.S. Uh, they still believe they're in the right. Many of them still believe that they, they won the war. And the people that died got a quick trip to paradise. And so, uh, philosophically, war didn't change anything. And so, while we're shouting and hollering and thinking we've accomplished something great and we spent all those billions of dollars and, and several hundred thousand people uh, lost their life, uh, the thinking of nobody... Uh, about concerning the differences over has been changed. We maybe can force Iraq to sign something that they recognize certain things about Kuwait, but that don't mean that they really believe it. Uh, in fact, one thing we found with the Germans after World War I in the Versailles Treaty is that through force you can sign people, cause people to agree to things they don't believe. But if they don't believe it, they're not going to keep it. It's only when people believe something in their heart that they're actually going to keep it. So the the signing of those things really Uh, only amounts to something so long as you've got force there. All right, we as Christians are looking at the world completely different. Uh, We're looking at the kingdom of God as a a spiritual institution. Uh, We're looking at it from the standpoint that uh, uh, peace in the world will come about uh, not through forcing views on individuals, but by changing of hearts and people of their own free will embracing certain attitudes. Well, if we're going to convey this, uh, being in a positive influence in the world, a positive influence in reaching those people over there, and do the things to spread the, uh, the kingdom of God, then we're going to have to familiarize ourselves, I believe, with the Islam religion. In fact, I believe that one of the mistakes that Christians sometimes make in evangelism is, is not taking the time to familiarize themselves with the beliefs and the understandings of whoever it is that they're talking to. A good example in the Bible will show that the Apostle Paul definitely did. Uh, he was well-studied among the Greeks and their poets and their culture, and, and he used that in his, his own reasoning process. Okay, let's review. And any comment you want to make now, uh, you, you just go ahead and make it. Any question? And if we have to dig out some, some of the books, we'll, we'll go ahead and first, I'll establish for the record here the books that we have used so far, and I brought, I'll introduce another one tonight. Uh, the number one source uh, has been this book, Islam Revealed, uh, A Christian Arab's View of Islam by Dr. Annas Shoresh. Uh, this is exceptionally good, uh, one of the best that I've read, and the man writing it has a doctor's degree. He is an Arab who was converted to Christianity and he writes from that cultural background with an understanding of that language and with the experience with the, with the Arabs and with Islam, and it is a very, very good record uh, on, the, on the Islam religion. By the way, the word Islam itself means surrender to God. The word Muslim means one who has surrendered to God. Okay, Islam simply means a religion that surrenders to God. Uh, you, so when you say, I am an Islam what you're saying, I have surrendered my life to God. A Muslim is one who has uh, surrendered his life to God. Another source was uh, this book, Islam, uh, edited by John Allen Williams. Another source I used was the Handbook of Today's Religion by Josh McDowell, uh, a section here. This, by the way, this by McDowell uh, is very good for a synopsis. Uh, In other words, in about uh, 30 minutes, you can re- easily read and digest everything he says, and it, but only look at it as a synopsis. But it is a good synopsis. All right, the other source, and this was outstanding, by the way, if you're in the process of accumulating some books and you can ever get it, this um, Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastic Literature by McClintock and Strong. Uh, it's published in the last century. Uh, About every so many years, they come back and republish it again, and it is absolutely outstanding. Of course, you keep in mind it goes to the last century, but the scholarship here, uh, from a conservative Christian standpoint, is is absolutely outstanding. Uh, Most preachers within the various conservative groups would put this on a par with your top encyclopedias, like the Britannica. This would be considered the Britannica uh, of biblical literature. And so you can, in here i have got an excellent section on Muhammad and uh, on his life, his birth, uh, the various falsehoods and truths, uh, the, do, the historical documents that are used in studying about Muhammad, uh, how he arrived at his particular beliefs, and then the starting and spread of the Islam religion. And so these, these sources here were the ones primarily... Of course, a few other articles and things like that, but these were the primarily the sources I used in, in preparation for the study. Okay, now, looking at Muhammad. Muhammad had his birth about 570, 570, 571, right in that area, about 570, 571 A.D. Uh, he's born in Arabia, in Mecca. Okay, that's why it's one of the holy cities uh, for the Muslims, born in Mecca, All right, the other holy city for them is Medina, and that was a place where Muhammad fled uh, from persecution at a time in his life, and then he came back to Mecca. And so uh, the two holy places, his birth at Mecca, and then also Medina, the two two holy cities. Born about 570 A.D., very little education. Uh, There is a lot of debate as to whether or not he could read and write. Uh, there are arguments on both sides, but yet all sides would agree that he was not a truly literate person. In other words, he definitely was not well-read, not well-studied, uh, no formal uh, education. Uh, in his background, his father died at a very early age, and his mother then had him for a period of time somewhere uh, up to his low teens. As a child, uh, Mohammed was an epileptic. In those days, they didn't understand about being an epileptic, and so when a person had epileptic seizures, they thought he was possessed by demons, and in fact, um, a lot of, of mental illnesses, things that we call mental illness, uh, in antiquity, they referred to it as demon possession, and epilepsy was, was one of those areas that to them, you were possessed by a demon, and you can understand how they would arrive at that concept if you've ever seen anybody that's having an epileptic seizure, so that at least was a concept. So, Muhammad had epilepsy. Okay, his, his father dies, uh, then his mother dies. Uh, he's taken in by a grandfather at first, and then by an uncle. And the, the uncle raises him primarily in that area. His whole background is one of poverty. Uh, he winds up earning his livelihood in his early years as a shepherd. And a shepherd was uh, uh, a very low status, okay, very low status. And so his whole background is is one of poverty in that area. Uh, Among the people that he was brought up in, uh, most were Bedouins. Uh, They were people of the plains. Uh, They were nomads. Uh, There was no one strong united body of people among the Arabs, but all of them had their own little groups. Um, raiding and stealing and looting one another was commonplace. Uh, In the area where Muhammad was brought up, uh, polytheism, uh, idolatry was literally on the rampage. But even though that most of the people were idolatrous, idolatry from the educated standpoint was on the way out, Keep in mind that Judaism has had a tremendous influence in introducing the world to the concept of one true God. And then Christianity has been on the scene for uh, those hundreds of years with this concept of one God. Well now, although the majority around him were in idolatry, uh, many, maybe most of the very learned people among the Arabs uh, had cast aside the belief in idolatry. In other words, they didn't believe that those idols and the things that they used were, uh, had any importance or any tie to God whatsoever. So he was born in a world that on the one hand was idolatrous, but the educated people from that same world were coming out of that. Uh, Christianity's already been introduced, and Judaism. When he was about 25 years of age, he married a wealthy woman who was a number of years his senior. All right, now here's where religion begins to uh, play a part with Muhammad. He's already had a lot of uh, uh, religious contact in his early years, and he was one of these people that tended to think uh, on on religious matters. Uh, It may be because that he, one of the reasons may have been that he was an epileptic, and he was taught from childhood that that was demon possession, and that may have caused uh, thinking on God and religion and things like that, you know. Uh, He had contact with, with uh, some Jews, Uh, he had contact with uh, people of Christian belief, had contact of course with the idolatrous people. Okay, when he marries this woman who is some years his senior and is affluent, what it allowed Muhammad to do was to, he didn't have to earn his living now uh, as a sheep herder, and so he could devote his full-time attention to what he was interested in. And so he was interested in religion. And so now uh, almost uh, he's totally supported by the, a wealthy woman a wealthy older woman that he's married to and he fathers several children by her but he devotes himself to religion and that's where his interest is well he he contemplates idolatry he wasn't satisfied with that he had contact with Jews and he was impressed with the concept of one true god by the Jews and so he bought into that and he came to the conclusion that that was through his own reflection and his own evaluation of the evidence that that was a superior idea, that that, that was more in the direction of truth to him than idolatry. And so we're saying that uh, through his own environment he had contract, uh, contact with monotheism in, in, the, in the Jews and idolatry and he comes to the conclusion that monotheism simply makes more sense and so he buys into that. Okay, now... He also has some influence by Christians, but the Christians that he has contact with are not people that would be uh, those of a strong knowledge of the New Testament uh, who were really and truly pursuing Christianity as it was real by the Apostles. It would have been a sect that would have been considered uh, of, a heretic, uh, of, a, of a heretic nature by the Christians of that day. Uh, for example, uh, the evidence is that he probably never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that he was familiar with some of the, uh, uh, the the Gospels that was written several hundred years later that manufactured stories about Jesus. For example, the Gospel of Thomas uh, and, and this manufactured stories about Jesus where he turned uh, clay pigeons into live <clears throat> pigeons as a little boy and did things like that. And so his contact was not with the New Testament, but with books purported to have been written by the apostles, such as the Gospel of Thomas, and he had a. Are
1: those called the Gnostic gospels? Right,
0: right. Some, well, the some right. It would be one uh, part of it. Right. They would be. Uh, they would be. The Gnostics would accept uh, a lot of that. In fact, uh, Ed the. Uh, by the way, the word Gnostic means to uh, a desire for knowledge, more knowledge. Uh, the uh, these particular gospels we're talking about were actually written for by the Gnostic communities with a desire to spread. In other words, they believed that their idea of Christ and God was right, and so they simply wrote gospels to spread that particular concept. And they were written, and then what they would do, uh, and by the way, this was custom in that day, to write something and use somebody else's name. Uh, And so even though the the so-called gospel of Thomas was actually written several hundred years uh, after the apostles, but Thomas's name was used. And this was a characteristic in that day. If you wanted to write something that you believed was right, and you wanted to get people to read it, then you'd use the name of some prominent or important person. So as, as wrong as it is from our standpoint, it was just simply a, a practice that they engaged in at that time. So his contact with Christianity was not the best sort. Not only that, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was in the process of evolving on the scene. And... Uh, As the Catholic Church evolved, and and a number of people, a number of the Arabs that were converted to Christianity in in this area, they actually uh, brought in a lot of paganism and intermingled it with the Christian religion, such as the worship of demons. Uh, For example, I'll give you an idea, a concept on the worship of demons and how it's come down through the Catholic Church right now. Uh, If you keep up with the news, everybody here has heard of Danny Thomas, and you know that Danny Thomas founded uh, St. Jude's Hospital. In Memphis, that has done a lot of good. Well, the reason he founded that hospital, uh, uh, Danny Thomas, at a time in his life when he was uh, not successful, you got some? Did I say something wrong or
1: <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> All right, Danny Thomas prayed to Saint Jude, and then when he was successful, he believed that Saint Jude had answered his prayer, and so then he founded that Saint <laughs> Jude's Hospital. Uh, and, of course, fumbled money and solicited money, money for it. But uh, the the belief of, of saints as mediums between us and God, and you can pray to these saints, uh, deifying Mary, the mother of God, and praying to Mary. Well, when that was his contact with Christianity. It was either from the Gnostic Gospels, as, as Ed pointed out, or through this kind of corrupted Christianity, that had bought into this uh, deifying of, of the uh, uh, various individuals that had died. And so when he contrasted that with just the concept of one true God, Christianity to Mohammed bordered on idolatry. And so as a result of coming in contact with a corrupted form of Christianity, he wound up rejecting Christianity. Mark? I was going
2: to say, don't the, uh, even today, Catholics like, they'll, they'll kiss the Icons and things like that, and the mm. you know pictures of sure. saints or whatever is that was that kind of thing? You know if that was going on too, that kind of uh, that's yeah idolatry. I mean, sure.
0: You know. the, what happened is uh, what you have there is uh, a case where as Christianity went out and converted people, there were any number of areas where a lot of the world and the beliefs of the people were brought into Christianity, and the Catholic Church is just literally full of institutions. Uh, that were brought into the church as they converted people. For example, Christmas, that everybody mm-hmm. observes, is was really a pagan holiday. Uh, the Yule season was a time in pay, uh, to get drunk and and have a good time, and uh, it was the birthday of the sun god, uh, because the sun reaches its lowest point uh, uh, in the shortest day, the 21st of December, and the 25th it starts the rise again and with, for the longer days. So the birth of the sun god. And so that whole system was brought into Christianity and, and, and all of so-called Christ's Mass was based around a, uh, a pagan concept that the Catholics... Easter was a pagan celebration. And the Easter bunny and the uh, Easter ra- the rabbit were uh, fertility symbols. See, a lot of your pagan idols were fertility gods. And so the egg and the rabbit were fertility symbols. And you can see how they blended that in. When we think of Easter... Uh, that actually takes precedence over the resurrection of Christ. And they ask children what Easter is, and they talk about bunny bunnies and and, and eggs. You know, well, there are any number of things like that. So I'm saying that that uh, what he had contact with in Christianity was Gnosticism, uh, false gospels, uh, a Christianity that had been influenced by paganism, and consequently, it did it looked like something that was not right. It it uh, but yet he was impressed with Jesus, okay, he was, and, uh, and so he embraced Jesus, Muhammad did now, and then we've got what we're doing now, we're looking at Muhammad as he's in the process of evolving into this prophet. Now, he doesn't come to the conclusion he's a prophet until he's about 40 years of age, uh, 16 AD, and so here he marries at 25, and so we've got 15 years uh, married to a wealthy woman here while he has full time to reflect and to think, and we see the the evolution of his thinking that is going to lead to the Islam religion. So we see the influence that the Jews had on him. We see some influence that uh, not true Christianity, but a corrupted form of Christianity had on him. By the way, that, uh, the influence that uh, the Jews had on him uh, in many ways was also not true Judaism, but a corrupted. For example, the the evidence is that uh, one of the uh, groups that had a, a a lot of influence on him was a... Group called the H A I F. You can pronounce pronounce that on, on your own. But anyway, it was they traced their uh, their origin back to the Essenes, and of course the Essenes are the people that give us the Dead Sea Scrolls. But anyway, this this body of people have now come uh, centuries, you know, five hundred and seventy years uh, from before from where they actually had the studied and were very studious in the Old Testament scriptures. And so now at this time, the this group of people, although believing in the one true God, that's one concept they held, they really don't have the Old Testament scriptures. And so they don't have a faith based on the scriptures, but they have retained the concept of the one true God. So they really didn't he really didn't have a, a really a true shot at pure Judaism, a corrupted shot at Christianity, and then idolatry. All right, from all of this Muhammad is forming some conclusions in his mind, and, and one is, the, mo, the one great truth that sticks out in his mind is that there is one true God. Now, I say this because that as we see the evolution of his thinking, Muhammad, we, we like to paint people who differ with us as being, you know, terrible individuals and all like that. Muhammad is, at this stage, not a terrible person. He is the product of his environment who has had the opportunity to reflect on religion. He's interested in religion. And like we said, the fact that he was an epileptic uh, and had been told that, you know, that uh, he was demon-possessed and all might have uh, uh, heightened that interest. And then he happens to marry an older lady who's wealthy, and that gives him full time to dwell on what he's really interested in. And so there's all this debate going on around him. There's a Christianity he's heard about, and there's Judaism, and and then there's these various idolatrous practices, and so he zeroes in, he really, uh, he comes to at least one great truth, he comes to believe in one true universal God, and he totally rejects all idolatry, okay, now the next step along the way, Muhammad's, first Muhammad was bothered by the fact that he was possessed by evil spirits, you know, with his epilepsy, but his wife had a very important part in convincing Muhammad that this was not evil spirits, but rather it was God speaking to him. And so keep in mind now, what his, his tie-in to God as it's going to evolve started out with his belief that it was actually possessed by evil spirits, and then under the influence of his wife and then others who got <laughs> in on the act, he becomes convinced that he is uh, being called by God. So here's a religious person, and by the way, his mother uh, was one who had visions and believed that God talked to her and, and talked directly to her. And so that was in his background. Uh, another one in his background, uh, one of his uncles that had a part in rearing him, and a grandfather. One of them was a priest of one of the idolatrous groups, and so that he's got a lot of religion in his background. <laughs> okay, so now this man has has come to the the conclusion of the very real possibility that he is being called by God. All right, now what happens, and here's where a lot of his revelations are going to come. Since this uh, uh, epileptic seizure was not evil spirits, it was God, then whenever he had a seizure, after the seizure was over, and then he would think on religious matters and utter his thinking, that became the oracles of God. And so after a seizure... Uh, and then the thinking and dwelling on these uh, various religious matters, and then uh, he would give his thoughts on it. And so that became the oracles of God. And the Quran is entirely the work of Muhammad, and uh, mo- written over a period of about 22 years. So he comes to the conclusion at 40 that he's a prophet of God. And for the remaining, he dies at about 62. And for the remaining 22 years, he has his visions, you know, after these seizures. And he comes and, and then he is believing that these are the oracles of God, and then he's got others now that he has convinced that he is a prophet of God, and so they begin to write these down. And so they write these down, and so the book itself, now the size of the Koran is about four fifths the size of the New Testament. Okay, four fifths the size of the New Testament. So here's the Koran forming over twenty two years. Now notice a distinction between it and the Bible and it in the New Testament as part of the Bible. It's the work of one man. It's a result of, of uh, experiences as he's had over 22 years. Uh, it's the work of a man who believed that his epilepsy well, at one time was possession by demons and becomes convinced by his wife and others that, that really it's God speaking to him. It's the work of a man who has for years trying to has reflected on, on religion and actually is is a seeker of truth. In fact, is uh, one uh, historian made the comment that you have such a a great contradiction here. Here was his a man that seemed to spend his life searching for religious truth and winds up propagating one of the great and most successful lies known, known to humanity. you know if, it, if, it, if it's fa- if it's false, and yet he was trying to gather what was right. Now, Something, we, before we go further and, and look at him and some things about the Muslim religion, notice how important it becomes for Christians to actually teach and practice Christianity in a way that is set forth in the New Testament. That it was an, a corrupted form of Christianity that actually turned him off at Christianity in the first place. Okay, now, and I don't want to get more into that tonight, but in the future, I'd like to look at that in our own uh, society and everything like that. I believe a lot of people out here today that are turned off at Christianity or don't even want to consider it are turned off because their concept of Christianity uh, is Jim and Tammy Baker or, or Jimmy Swagger or, or institutions that build multi-million dollar establishments in a world where people are, are starving to death. Uh, are individuals who get decked up on Sunday and sing some songs and profess to be holy and yet curse and fornicate and and flop around and and do wrong things during during the week, and, and so that that's what they have contact with. It calls itself Christianity, and I think that a look at Muhammad. In fact, uh, the the Christian who wrote this book, Islam Revealed, actually had a certain amount of respect for Muhammad. He believes that. That had Muhammad had contact with some true Christians, uh, people that were honestly disciples of Jesus and teaching the New Testament. Uh, that the man may have turned out entirely different, uh, but he was he was going on the basis of what he had what he had contact with.
2: Don't you think that uh, that if Muhammad, I don't know, he pursued it, but somehow it seems like he ought to have been able to find what was right if he was looking well, hard enough.
0: but we haven't, yeah. We haven't arrived at that point now on that we're just looking at what he actually, in other words, historically, what he actually was and how he did arrive there. I will say this though in answer to that uh, uh, Mark, where he would have had contact with uh, Christians pursuing New Testament Christianity in the part of the world where he was living at his time, I don't know. In other words, keep in mind, the printing press hasn't been invented. There's no New Testaments floating around. There's no Old Testaments floating around. Uh, All written material is handwritten. Only the elite and the wealthy have the written material. That's why Jesus comes on so strong in his condemnation of the religious leaders in his day and said, you have the keys of knowledge, etc. The common man didn't have a copy of the Bible. I mean, who, who could afford to purchase a product that had to be handwritten? You know, on on, on the, the the average person just didn't have it. You know, and so I'm saying he really didn't uh, have from all um, the study that you know that has been involved in this. He didn't have the best shot at it, you know, in, in in his situation. And there were some valid things that he came up with, and even those that were invalid, you can show the influence of his environment on him. Uh, you know, the and, and just for example that uh, he comes to this conclusion now of one true God. He comes to the conclusion he's a prophet of God. But notice he's not just walked out and said, I'm a prophet. He actually believed he was possessed by a demon, and, and others with his wife leading the way were able to convince him of this. He has studied uh, uh, from all up until he's 40 years of age. In other words, he doesn't even claim to be a prophet until he's 40. He has studied religion based on the information that he's had access to. all right. And then he makes a very sound judgment based on his, what he's had access to, and that is that, uh, that there was one true God. Okay, and then he comes to the conclusion that he is a prophet. And we can see how he arrives at that. Okay, now, the next thing that Muhammad does is that he tries to convince others that he is God's prophet. And so he goes out condemning idolatry. And that took a lot of courage. And in his condemning idolatry, he was persecuted. And he was chased out of town. And so he's got very strong convictions and, and he's willing to put his life on the line. In the process of being persecuted and chased and everything, he does convert a number of people uh, to the belief in one in this one God. But now notice what happens to Muhammad. At first he's an individual claiming to be a prophet, converting people to this belief in one true God, to the fact that he is a, a prophet of God. And in his concept was a concept for the times, because the people now are debating in their mind, what about idolatry? The the, the most educated of, of and the poets and all of, of that time, the great writers, were already rejecting idolatry. And then there was Judaism and Christianity on the scene. And And the interesting thing is that man, anywhere you find him, wants to worship and have a relationship with God. And it may be as perverted as all get out, but he wants to do it. Well, these people are so perverted in their worship, in their idolatry in that area, that they offered their ch- children as sacrifices. They committed great acts of violence in their worship to these idols. In fact, the Arabs uh, tended to be a very violent, a very aggressive, a very warring people, and some of their atrocities uh, were done in their belief in God. And you're going to see how this is transferred. A lot of this is transferred right into the Muslim religion. In fact, it was interesting. One writer that I was reading from said that anytime you're reading in history, you have to be very careful of the information written by people that were favorable to the individual you're studying because they have a tendency to want to whitewash the negative, you know, or just push it aside. But he said we really can get down to a lot of truths on Muhammad because things that you and I would consider atrocities by the man, some of the things he did and is going to do later on, the, Muslim, the, the early founders of the Muslim religion, the early converts, really didn't try to cover any of this up because they didn't look at it that way. In other words, things that look shockingly bad to us in his character that, that you and I if, you know, would, would want to push aside, they really didn't make any effort in that line because they didn't, they didn't look at it as shocking. It wasn't. In other words, when Muhammad had 15 wives, that was not shocking to them. And it was, it was no, that was no big deal, you know, when he limited them to four. That was something to think about. And so I'm, I'm saying that uh, in, in this, when he uh, uh, makes this other transfer we're going to talk about, we said that he, at first he's persecuted and they reject him and all, but he does convert some. But then what happens as his number gets larger and larger, he goes on the offense. Now he's got enough to fight back. And so he begins to uh, attack. With the idea of like attacking a group of people, with the idea you either convert to Islam, uh, the surrender to God, or we're going to destroy you, all right? He believed he was doing the will of God when he came upon these idolatrous people and he gave them the choice to convert or he would destroy them. You say, well, how can he get a concept like that? Well, remember in the Old Testament when the, the Israelites went into the land of Canaan, And they were told to go in and and to wipe out idolatry in the land and to destroy it. But on the other hand, those people that were converted to a belief in the one God and could actually uh, enter into relationship with him. A good example, when they took Jericho and you had Rahab the harlot and uh, becoming a convert, remember the uh, Ruth, the Moabitess who winds up in the lineage of Jesus, who was a convert, and, and through her association with Naomi, became a believer in the, in the one true God. Uh, Uriah the Hittite, and others that you read about in the Old Testament, the Bathsheba, that were converted to belief in the, in the one true God. So this concept of, of, once you believe in the one true God, of deciding that, you, that it, it, it is your job to go to literally war against idolatrous people, and if they don't convert, wipe them out. I'm saying that he thats it, it was through contact with that material that he arrived at that conclusion. And he come from a background in, in among the Arabs where they warred, they warred and fought all the time, okay? So he starts to go on the aggressive. And he would fight, and he would conquer, and he would kill, okay? So this is why, and if we can look back and see how, how he formed that thinking and how it spread, It'll help us to understand the Muslims to this day, because you and I uh, look at the Muslims. It helped me, you know, and I went to understand this. I found it such a a contradiction to watch those people on the news on TV bowing down with their head all the way to the ground five times a day, going to prayer and praying to God. There are women walking around in in sheets, you know, and and they're and here they are, you know, with this strong conviction in God and. And thinking that we are uh, Satan incarnated, uh, in in Satan incarnated, in in our country, and yet with all that piousness and all, they can go out and do things that are so cruel that it behooves our imagination. Look at the Iraqis, who are Muslims, come into a, another Muslim country and persecute, and torment, and pull the nails out of people's hands, and torture them in every violent way imaginable, well, every time the, and then we look at those Muslims, they constantly are fighting, and warring, and, and squabbling, and, and to us, that seems to be a contradiction uh, in, in, with, with belief in God, but from their standpoint, it is not the great contradiction that it is for us, and so he comes out of that background, where you war, and you fight now, Here's something else he began to do, and, and at first he seems to be uh, have a very high level of sincerity. You know what degree I'm, you know I'm not going to get into his heart and speculate. And some of the early converts uh, seem to be sincere in in that I'm talking about those who were converted to him as a prophet. But then when they started to war and conquer, the Arabs had a policy that. Uh, whenever you went in and fought and took a city, you looted it, and, and, and the spoils belonged to the victors. So what happens, Mohammed begins to attract a lot of people who have been converted for very, seemingly for very convenient ways to the Islam religion. It was a good living. And so they would go in, and they would conquer these idolatrous people, but then after they conquered them, it, it see, the, all indications were they seemed to be more interested in taking the spoils uh, than they were in anything else. And so then they would go in and loot them and take everything that they had. And over a period of years, literally thousands, and we can only speculate about how many thousands, of both idolatrous peoples and Jews and Christians were killed uh, by the followers of Muhammad in spreading their, their, true, their what they believe is their, their true religion. Okay, now, that gets us up to Muhammad being about 62 years of age, we're about 632, uh, 33 A.D. He dies. So here we've got a religion that is really very simple. It, it's based on two concepts. The one true God, belief in the one true God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And, and, and the worship is very simple. It, it involves, uh, their tenets of faith are so simple. It involves, uh, number one, praying five times a day. Okay? It involves almsgiving some concern for the poor. You can't be a a true Muslim unless you did that. It involves a a pilgrimage each year that everybody's got this pilgrimage to uh, to Mecca and you've also got a pilgrimage to Medina there. So you've got a holy city with a a pilgrimage. And so a very simple religion revolving around a pilgrimage, pilgrimage, uh, some prayers, belief in Muhammad as a prophet, uh, belief in the one true God, and acceptance of the Koran as the word of God. All right, now when you accept the Koran as the Word of God, if ever there was a, a male's religion, uh, this is it. Uh, the Koran, for example, is uh, quite different in its uh, ideas about purity uh, to the New Testament. Uh, Muslim, had uh, uh, Mohammed, had 15 wives that we know of, you know, record of. Remember, uh, the week before last, we studied about one of his wives uh, was actually in the family and uh that he looked on her and and found her it was a uh, i believe and I'm trying to uh I think said it
2: was a first cousin or something first
0: cousin or an adopted son or what a stepson maybe I can't I can't remember but anyway it was the wife of somebody in his family it was the wife of one of his family members I should we you know rather than take the time to look it up we we'll just take the wife of one of the family members he looked on her found her very attractive and so then when the her husband, who was in the family with Muhammad, found out that Muhammad found his wife very attractive. He was actually flattered that Muhammad, and, but it was against their belief that he married, could marry her. And she was flattered that Muhammad found her very attractive. So then what they did, they had a vision from God and decided that now it was an oracle of God that it was, it was no longer wrong. Uh, to marry. And so in the Quran there is that exception of marrying uh, the wife of somebody in the family because Muhammad did it. And so, in other words, he had his vision at exactly the right time. I guess that's why Saddam married his first cousin. Saddam, uh, Barbara points out that uh, of course, now this was even different than that. Saddam is married to his first cousin, but this guy was actually taking somebody else's wife. In other words, I'm saying that even those people in that day looked down on taking the wife of somebody else. And he was actually taking the wife of a family member, and he actually came up with an oracle from God that would permit this kind of thing. Uh, by the way, this has happened before. For example, in the you know, later among the Mormons, uh, the Mormons belief in polygamy or that you could have many wives. Uh, it was against the law in this country. And so the Mormons were being persecuted because of that, and rejected, and and, uh, and Joseph Smith had a multitude of wives, and uh, Brigham Young had his wives, no? Well, uh, after a lot of jailing, and persecution, and rejection, and the people fleeing to uh, Utah, they finally had a vision on this matter, and straightened it out, and got their beliefs more in keeping to the laws of the land, but I'm saying the difficulty factor resulted in the vision. Uh, the Mormons uh, uh, rejected the blacks, as inferior to the white. And then after the civil rights movement and things like that, and the trend towards equality, uh, there, was some, there was some little inspiration that came forth there and, and straightened that matter out. And so I'm saying it's not unusual for religions to, to get their visions in tune to either what they want to do or what the political situation might demand at the time. And so we began to see in uh, Mohammed a very sensual person. Now, notice what happens. He starts out seemingly... A very sincere individual but keep in mind all human beings are frail they're weak and and there is a human tendency that as we acquire power and prestige and the adulation of others uh, that sometimes that we can get too big for our pants and so as we follow Mohammed we find that as as the number grew larger and the adulation grew stronger that Muhammad came convinced beyond any doubt in his mind that he was God's prophet, that he was, now, he was greater than Jesus. He accepted Jesus as a prophet, but he was greater Sensual his desires or whatever he wanted to do. If he wanted to do it, it became an oracle of God. And so, the, so that thinking of, of having arrived at that spot seemingly allowed him room to turn loose his own sensual desires, and, and he actually became something other than uh, a religious type person. By the way, you can see maybe the same thing in uh, in in the the the, the evolution of uh, the leadership in the church as we began to evolve in Christianity to a pope in Rome, and and you study that and you find that it it just seems that it's hard for individuals to have a situation of prominence and adulation of others and not to take full advantage of it and to think that the, the, there's more to them than there there really is. And that's been the case, it seems like anytime anybody, all through history, uh, has had a situation where he was exalted to that that point. Uh, Many of the leaders of the past came to the conclusion that they were deity and that they ought to be worshipped. The emperors of Rome, for example, came to the conclusion after a few years in power that they were deity and that they ought to be worshipped. So Muhammad reaches this point. Now he dies. Then, now there's a great squabble that takes place as to who's going to succeed him. Alright, a lot of the debate, and we remember we said when we introduced our study a few weeks back, that now uh, the Muslims are in some ways like the uh, uh, those that profess Christianity, uh, they're divided up in a multiplicity of sects. And so there is some 150 plus Muslim sects. Uh, the, they have their groups that believe that they are the one in the true group, like for example the Shiites and the Sunnis, uh, among the Muslims, each of them believe that they are the one true group and all the others are going to hell Okay, so that's why when we look and we say well hey those people not only hate the Jews and, and hate the Christians and, and, and hate all the infidels uh, they, they can't even get along with one another well they're, they're different brands of Muslims the, uh, the, uh, when Iraq went to war with Iran one of the things that Saddam was concerned about, he, he had a reason for going in remember when the Ayatollah came in and overthrew the Shah and uh, Iran became a theocracy. Well, the Ayatollah is a leader of a very fundamentalist group of Muslims who believe that they are the one and true Muslims, and they believe in a theocracy. Well, Saddam is really a secularist. He does not believe that, and he was concerned that, that they would influence his own country, okay? And so his, what he was really fighting against, well, he didn't need anything in Iran, He's fighting against the spread of that fundamentalist Muslim religion, and he actually wanted to conquer it and, and subdue it. Uh, in the same vein, when Muhammad looked at the, the Kuwaitis, and we say, well, how can a Muslim do that to a Muslim? Well, they may be both Muslims, but they're different sects. And he actually and, uh, looks down at the people of, of Kuwait, and believes that they are wrong on their... In other words, that uh, he maybe would look at the Iranians and some of the others in the same way that maybe a Protestant looks at a Catholic or or something of of that nature. So I'm saying that among the Muslims in that area, they are not as united as the appearance is given when we just say Muslim. When you say Muslim, you you really just said two things. Number one, he believes in one God, and he believes Muhammad is a prophet. But then, uh, from there on, the door is open. When it comes to the Quran... There are different views on the Koran. Uh, some of them accept more or less than others. Uh, there's other religious material outside the Quran that some accept more or less. And then when it comes to the leadership, the biggest debate is, is in that area. For example, the, some of the Muslims believe that uh, a person had to be able to trace his lineage uh, back to uh, the son of uh, Muhammad's daughter. He had no sons, but the son of his, of his daughter in order to have a claim to be a leader, you know, among them. Then there are others that believe that the lineage has nothing to do about it, that they want to elect and believe that he ought to represent the people. So there's strong differences there uh, in, in how they are to have their leadership. Uh, Mark? Are
2: they, that sounds just like what we've got in Christianity
0: today. Very similar on the leader thing. I mean, well, uh, what's the difference the, between us and the Catholic? Is, yeah, okay. is the Pope in Rome, is he Christ's vicar on this earth? Uh, and that's the, that's our number one difference with the Roman Catholics you know, is the rejection of the Pope.
2: Even the way they believe about, like you saying on the books and all, of, like there's all kinds of people who may claim to be Christian, you know, teaching theological seminaries that don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Or on uh-huh. the other hand, you've got the Catholics who accept those apocryphal books, sure. and things like that.
0: That's exactly right. You
2: know, is there a, are there Muslims just sort of like there can be Christians who accept others who disagree with them on certain points. Right. Are there Muslims like that?
0: Yes, uh, Muslims. Keep in mind, for the most, the majority of Muslims, even though they have their differences, their their number one point is number one belief in the one true God, and number two belief that Muhammad uh, is his prophet. And there are certain tenets that they would all agree on. For example, uh, all Muslims would bere- believe that you pray five times a day. Okay, and they have those five times. All of them would believe in some form of alms giving, you know, or consideration for the poor. That would be part of their religion. All of them believe in that pilgrimage to Mecca and, and Medina. And so they've got a number of things in other words, they agree on some very major points. That's why that a Muslim, even they, although they fight among one another, they would still be closer to one another than they would be to anybody that's not a Muslim.
2: What about on um, something like you know, you, you mentioned how that the Shiites are to believe they're the true, and then the, the Sunnis the Sunni. believe they're the true. Okay.
0: And there's a lot of well, others.
2: What what happens to those people that are not true? I mean, what do they think is going to happen? What do the Sunnis think well, is going to happen to the... What is the concept of judgment? Okay,
0: what do the Jehovah's Witness believe is going to happen to everybody that's Jehovah, not a Jehovah's Witness? They're going to burn up. No, they're, they're, going to, they're going to burn up here on this earth, and 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 there'll be that 144,000 go to heaven, and and then the other of the Jehovah's Witness be right here. Uh... Uh, what do the Mormons believe? It's going to happen to everybody who's not a Mormon. Judgment again.
2: You're, going to, uh,
0: they, they, they don't, you're not going
2: to get to paradise. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Not
0: going to get to the, to the highest part there, right. And so I'm saying in the same vein, that on the one, they definitely look at the others as as, as being lost. Now, uh, some other things about them. We've noted that uh, that warring and fighting is not contradictory to religion in their, uh, their concept that... Uh, they believe that, uh, that there is no better way to die than to die fighting for Allah. And uh, they believe that even if you lose the battle to your enemy, you still are guaranteed a trip into paradise and that you are a glory to Allah, you know, here on this earth. Uh, Muhammad, one of the great evidences that he gave to his being a prophet of God was the fact that they won those battles. You know, so when they'd win, that was that was evidence that he was a prophet of God. I mean, they went in and won the battle and, and and conquered those since, people. Since
2: you're on that, and and war is compatible with their religion, you still have that conscience. I mean, I mean, you're, you're taught by all these. Mm-hmm. You know, you got your surroundings and all. Them, but doesn't it ultimately? Can't they see a contradiction I mean, can't they perceive a contradiction in what they're doing and what they actually are? I mean, in, you know in some things.
0: But keep in mind too that your conscience is a product of your education. Uh, uh, remember Lot, a righteous man, right? And uh, his his Peter said his spirit was vexed by the corruptness of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's got his two daughters, and he's entertaining these two male guests, and these homosexuals are there at the door banging to get in, and what does he want to do to pacify them? Hands over his... He's willing to hand his daughters over to them. You see, in his in his in his belief structure, uh, you the the woman was inferior to the male, and there's no it would have been a he could not turn over his male guest, you know, but he could his daughters,
2: I guess. What I'm getting at is, is there any circumstance where a person is not accountable to God because of, of their environment or, or whatever, you know?
1: Well, I, <laughs> I think Mark's probably thinking of passages and, and they're running through my mind too, like, seek and you shall find. So yeah,
2: he, I, that's why I was thinking okay. of Muhammad.
1: If he's why seen, no, he, no, no, he, but
0: you know? we're not saying that, uh, the, we're not put, painting the best picture. All we was given was the historical facts. Of what he actually did, and that he was a product of the environment. From that,
2: you interpret uh, why he. In other
0: words, did. I believe Muhammad. Right, Paul said in Romans two fourteen through sixteen that uh, that even the Gentiles who didn't have the law, that uh, of their inner nature, they often did the thing. They did the requirements of the law with their own conscience. That yes, you can perceive that you don't want to be killed, and therefore uh, you can't murder anybody and not suffer the condemnation of your own conscience you can perceive that you don't want somebody stealing from you. And therefore, you, you can't do that in good conscience. I don't believe that Muhammad could steal and murder and lie in good conscience. I don't believe Saddam or, uh, Saddam or anybody else can. But I, but I do believe that people can deceive themselves. Uh, Paul made statements like, be not deceived, God is not mocked. In other words, that, that it is possible to deceive yourselves. Uh, he, Paul also spoke of people who had seared their consciences with a hot iron. That if you defy your conscience, it can reach the point that it really doesn't bother you. I know when I was in the Marine Corps that uh, I met any number of people of a religious background who at first could not do certain things because of that religious background, you know. But then, uh, under the pressure of all the peers, they would do certain of these things. Well, at first, the first time it really bothered them, but then the second time and the third time, and so then I saw guys that when they first went in, wouldn't have drank, uh, didn't use bad language, and, and then after several years, they were drinking regularly, and they were using bad language, and it, and it was just a, a, an occurrence with them. So I'm saying that, that uh, the conscience is something, I think, that can be seared. It's something where you, you can deceive yourself. Uh, a good example, when we see the news now, of, of after that war Look at how many people over there still saying they won the war. And, and you and I look at that and, and say, so that's crazy, you know. But, but yet they, they choose to believe that. They choose to believe I, it.
2: I guess the more I think about it, what I'm looking for is that definition of a conscience versus that inner tugging that you experience no matter where you are or whatever. Is that conscience is a sort of a...
0: Well, your conscience or sense of ought is not going to condemn you until you believe it's wrong. Okay, and there are certain things that you can perceive through your own experiences in life, but not everything. Uh, The uh, Abraham, uh, in all good conscience, fathered Ishmael through Hagar. Sarah was barren, didn't have a child. Uh, He didn't want to have relations with Hagar, but it was the custom of his day that if your wife did not uh, have a child, and was barren, if she had a servant and she wanted to, to have you to have a child by the servant and then that child would belong to you and would be your heir, then that was appropriate. And so it was Sarah that asked Abraham to have the relation with Hagar in order that he might have, a, have an heir. Well, he did in all good conscience and so did Sarah. It was in keeping with the culture and the custody. It was wrong. But I'm saying they experienced no guilt on it. It was in keeping with the culture of that day. Paul said that in all good conscience, I've lived my life. When Paul was persecuting Christianity and tried to stamp it out, he was doing it with a good conscience because he believed that Christianity was a false religion. He believed Jesus was an imposter and he thought he was doing service to God when he was stamping it out. And so here's a man in good conscience. So I'm saying your conscience condemns you whenever you do something that you perceive is wrong. But first you have to perceive it's wrong. And and, and with finite human beings, we don't always operate with all the information. And, And so a lot of times, we don't perceive things as being wrong when they are, simply because of the information we're operating with. And so Paul had made the statement there that this Gentile living before the cross was accountable to God based on his own conscience. And for example, he said to the Athenians, in times of ignorance, God winked at. In other words, that they had no revelation from God, and God winked over uh, their, their ignorance in, 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 that, in that area, and they were held accountable to their conscience, those things that they could perceive. And then he says, he goes on to say, in times of ignorance, but now God commands all men everywhere. And then he pointed out that now the, uh, the message of salvation in Christ was going to the whole world, and, and so and you've got this information going out. But still, your conscience will not condemn you on something unless you personally believe it's wrong and then it will condemn you and and you'll you'll experience guilt as a result of it but you won't experience any guilt whatsoever unless you perceive and believe something is, is wrong but no, I don't believe Muhammad is a saved individual or, or anything like that I think he was dishonest I think he was self-deceived I, I believe he was deluded I believe he started out as a sincere person headed in the right way and all but then I think some other things took I, place there. I
2: hated to make a big deal out of it. I was just—I I kept yeah. wanting to know. I mean, just you know, yeah. if Muhammad started out, if he never did get a good picture, you know, well, what about that? I mean, you know, yeah,
0: he had—he uh, did some. He was involved in some very violent atrocities before he died. I mean, the the killing of a number of Jews, uh, the killing of, of Christians, uh, the killing of any number of people. Uh, there's uh, uh, he gained from it financially. Uh, he acquired, uh, you know, the various wives and things like that. And towards the end, he seemed to be a very sensual person who was bent on satisfying his own flesh and his own greed. I mean, that's the picture that comes to my mind as I, as I look at it. And like I said, uh, in quoting the historian, he said, you know, normally uh, the practice of historians in the past is to whitewash their, their friends, you know, their, the people that they're with. But the reason that we can be very confident of many of these ugly things about Muhammad is that he said they didn't—they uh, didn't try to whitewash him because it because he was not an atrocity to them. It was no problem to them that Muhammad had those wives, and he was no problem to them about the the polygamy within their own situation or anything like that. And so, things that uh, it was no problem to them to go in and conquer people and try to force a religion on them or take their life and loot—that they they believe those things are right. So, consequently there was no desire to whitewash that uh, they, they, since they actually believed that it was I kind of okay. I wonder
2: what they had a problem with that they would have whitewashed
1: if, that was, if they wouldn't take care of that. In early times, like you take the book The Odyssey, in Odysseus, in The Odyssey, so that's kind of Western culture, he's seen as being good for being a sacker of cities. And so in early times when you're competing for the world's resources, there was a lot less, I guess, you know, to provide for everybody. You went out and you wiped out other people and then you had your people, your, your genetic stock or whatever, you know, it's worse by that. Uh, they sacked Troy, made all the Troy's slaves. And I guess I don't know anything about the Arabian <clears throat> Peninsula at this time, but you can just imagine that this place is a place of limited resources. And in that situation, I can see that, that one tribe would go in and wipe out another right. tribe for in, their resources.
0: In fact, Ed, I think you can, just like, t- let's take an area like uh, Grundy County. We're a very poor county. Uh, Sixty-five to seventy percent of the people here, their children are on free lunch. You know, and it's a it's a poverty type place. We have a lot of stealing in this county. You know, a lot of stealing. I don't uh, feel comfortable when I leave my house. I try to make it look like somebody's here. We have people check on it, etc. Uh, you know, the uh, that there is when you're in a place where there is a limitations of resource. There is going to be more stealing. You have a lot of stealing in the inner city. Now, you go out here to a, a good neighborhood where all the men have decent jobs and they live in nice houses and have cars, etc., uh, your chances of getting broke into by anybody in that neighborhood are probably slim to none. You know, it's just, it, there's, it, it's not everybody is, you know, pretty prosperous and everything. But when you're in a situation where the resources are limited and all, that there is going to be, and I think what Ed brought up is a good point, when you in that area, resources are limited, uh, there's a lot of poverty, and there's a lot of looting and a lot of stealing. Look at the thing they had on the news tonight. Uh, this at the very last they showed on there, this group headed back to Iraq from Kuwait City, and it said the reason they got caught and they were bombed and thousands of them, similar kill, but it said they were they were trying to loot everything they could out of Kuwait City, and they showed their trucks with TV sets and all kinds of appliances and everything like that, and says in their in their greed. To, to loot everything they possibly could out of that city at the very last minute, then they wound up not getting out in time and got caught. If they just took off, uh, they, they would have made it. Well, see, there again, Iraq is a, a poor place. <laughs> Kuwait is a you know, a wealthy place. I don't believe they had any problem whatsoever, uh, You know a lot of them, in, in doing that. I'm not saying they did it in good conscience. I'm saying they could delude and deceive themselves uh, you know, into, into doing that kind of thing. I think if, uh, uh, in starting, I'm, we're going to quit here. What I was going to, the next point we'll get to and we'll start next week, is uh, some contrast between Christianity and, Mo- and the Muslim religion. If you're talking with somebody that's a Muslim, a- and the biggest contrast we'll note to start with is the, uh, the difference in the Scriptures. You've got a book written by one person over a period of the, over years, 22 years, there is no evidence. In other words, you're, what is the evidence that Muhammad was a prophet in the first place? I mean, a, a guy that goes into seizures and makes the claim eventually that uh, uh, that he's of God and, and he gives those visions. In other words, I'm saying that there are no real evidences around Muhammad or anything or around the Koran. When a Muslim, if a Muslim is going to sit down and try to convert you and you got the Koran out, he's not going to take the Koran and appeal to your intellect in order to convince you that by some kind of evidence that it's inspired. He's going to he's going just present the message as being the truth and hope for an inner reaction and everything like that, but there's no real evidence. And we're going to note that Christianity is something that from the very first was based on the type of evidence that people were challenge, challenged to investigate with their God-given intelligence and only to accept it based on the evidence, and that uh, there's a difference between a book that's written by a, a large number of people over a period of years and, and flows together in one harmonious source, uh, in comparison to the work of one person over a period of time, uh, who had nothing in the way of evidence going forward, and nobody even claims much uh, in the in the way of evidence, you know, for the book itself. And then also we'll look at the uh, the differences in the. Uh, the, what Christianity teaches on some of the same areas. For example, on the one hand they accept Jesus as a prophet. A great prophet. Uh, they do not accept his, his resurrection. They do believe that he went into paradise so. And he's a great prophet. But then, and then Mohammed becomes the prophet where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit that promise was really talking about Muhammad to the Muslims. But then you, we can notice and look at uh, Jesus talking about marriage of one man, one woman, until death do you part. And then look at the way it was practiced by Muhammad and, and, the, way, and, and the way he actually talked, And look at the life of Jesus and contrast it with the life of Muhammad. Anybody so else? They didn't
1: have access to... Uh, to uh, but, uh, anything but a, like a corruptible Christianity. Do you know how pervasive uh, this this was at this time? I mean, was uh, was there any, any people in the
2: world that practiced uh, something resembling? Oh
0: yeah, you had a lot even within the, as the Catholic Church begins to form and all, you always have, you know, individuals that are very sincere and everything like that. See, the uh, the Gnostic Gospels and like the Gospel of Thomas and some of these other works, uh, uh they were considered heretics by the mainstream Christians. But you had a lot of of mainstream Christians that, you know, I'm not saying that you would agree with them on every point or anything like that, but I'm saying that they were very, very sincere in their belief in God, in their belief in Jesus, in their belief in a very moral and and godly life. You know, there were a lot of very sincere ones that that believed that way. But, uh, and this would be true down down through the years, but uh, you Today, I mean, when I look at Christianity, if I, if I hadn't read the Bible, if I didn't have some of the things I've got in my background, if my concept of Christianity is what I see on the Christian networks with the, the, all the hoopla and the emotion and the constant appeal for money and the, the overly paid TV evangelist, uh, if what I see in uh, a lot of the buildings out here and all, yeah, there would be nothing there appealing to me. Uh, the only thing that that has ever been appealing to me was the life of an individual who was truly trying to emulate Christ you know I, from from my youth all the way through any individual who honestly was trying to emulate Christ in their life i think that's always been attractive it's it's always been appealing there's just something there that you inwardly uh, identify with and 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 say is right but uh, i mean you don't uh, that is not the norm so far as Christianity is concerned in this country.
1: Didn't they uh, have a council and then clarify exactly what was Scripture and what was not? Oh, yeah. How did they, how did they eventually uh-huh. do away with the Gnostic gospel?
0: Oh Well, they uh, it never was. Number one, it never was I- I accepted by the majority or anything like that. It just absolutely never was accepted by the majority. Uh, it was just something uh, written by small groups of people that, see, the Gnostics and others were people who had a certain philosophical view based on the way they had been brought up and lived, and then they had contact with Christianity. So they took some out of Christianity and tried to blend it with you know, the views that they had on, on the, in these particular areas, in the same sense that you have uh, the blending of uh, the demons and uh, things like that in the Catholic Church with these people becoming saints and you're praying faith to them or Mary becoming deified and things I like they
1: that? they actually sat down and I guess the Romans did this. It was after Constantine. Actually sat down and... and, and oh they can. And they oh yeah, yeah. But,
0: but I'm saying you can't... A certain amount of the... But the, but the very thing, what they did, mm-hmm. when you're talking about the uh, the Council of Nicaea, the, uh, the uh, when they acknowledged uh, you know the canon and everything... They were already acknowledged. It was just a formal statement. You have a period of time where you have a formal statement. Right? The reason for that formal statement, it was the, in other words, it was the heretic uh, writings that actually motivated the coming forth and to take a, a plain statement about the, the canon itself. In other words, but it was there, it was already there and it was already acknowledged and uh, you, you have you have the material there, and it's all within mainstream Christianity, but then you also have these other things, and so then you have, out of concern about this heretic material, a coming together and a formalized statement about these things that were already, you know, believed in among them, and and then uh, it was actually done as protection, they thought, from, uh, you know, people being influenced and all, or believing that, Christianity believed that, you know, or that that represented Christianity. You know,
1: where I heard about the Gnostic Gospels, it was this teacher, and she brought in, I guess, a, you know, some of them written down in a book, and she was trying to convince the students that there was more to Scripture than just the Bible, and that some of that a lot of it had been kicked out in that.
0: Yeah. Uh, but council they do. In fact, there's there's materials even now that, like the Roman Catholic Church, they have the. The apoc- what we call the Apocrypha books, uh, written between books written between the Old and New Testaments. Well, the Jews had those books, uh, you know, and they were there, like 1st and 2nd Maccabees and all, and some of those books contain very good, accurate history. In fact, we learn a lot of the material that we know between the Old and New Testament by reading from these books. But the Jews never did embrace them as inspired. The apostles never quoted from them. Jesus never acknowledged them. So there, there's no, in other words, there was no Jew that ever even embraced them as part of the scriptures, and there was no Christians that, that embraced them. And the, the books themselves do not claim to be inspired. And not only that, but when you study the apocryphal books, they have the same feel that other secular books have. And what I mean is they contain some accurate information that you can verify, but they also contain some inaccurate information uh, they contain uh, uh, fables. Uh, they contain statements that contradict one another. They contain statements that uh, contradict the rest of the scriptures. In other words, they're just like religious material written today. It's a, a person who's writing his particular view. And a lot of what he has to say will be in agreement with the Bible. Some of it would not be, you know. Well, that's, that material was in the same category. Well, it was, it was uh, several hundred years after the New Testament, before and, and you have the formulation of the Roman Catholic Church before they actually accept the Apocrypha books, and see what happens to the Catholic Church. Once they accept the Pope as being Christ's vicar, then what he says goes. And so when he makes a, a judgment, even though the scholarship, uh, even among the Catholics, might say, hey, that's not the best judgment, but they're stuck with it. You're Once in a situation
1: they, like Muhammad, right? Where he where he's saying something. That's right. That and
0: it may not sound holy. quite right to you, but you've already embraced him as a prophet. Mm-hmm. And so you stuck with it. And saying this is one of the problems with the Catholic Church. Once they embrace the Pope, and just like even now, they believe that whatever he says in matters of religion is the will of God. So when he says something that they like now they're having different things in the Catholic Church, like the celibacy of the priest. And a lot of in the Catholic Church are wanting priests to be able to marry. And and it's, it, it seems to be that the majority of the Catholics differ with the celibacy rule, but they got a problem. They've embraced the whole the whole difference between them and the Protestants is their embracing of the Pope as Christ's vicar on this earth. So here they've got him advocating Very something. Where, poll, yeah,
1: trying to tell people in the United States. So they're stuck with it.
0: They're 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 stuck with it. You know, once that uh, once he advocates it in, in that way. But uh, you, the canon, you can show the formation of the canon and things like that, but those formal statements were only formal statements of that which was already embraced by the mainstream of Christianity. And it was brought about because of the various heretics, you know, Gospels and, and things like that. And when people make statements like you said this lady, does, it would be accurate to say that there have been claims of such and such. But there never has been a time when mainstream Christianity embraced those books and like the Gospel of Thomas was not written for several hundred years you know, after the apostles. See, the the number one criteria there was a number of criteria when they put together the canon of the New Testament. The number one criteria is that every book either had to be written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. And so it had to be written during the lives you know, of the apostles. That was their number one. So anything that was written after the death of the apostles. They didn't even consider. They didn't even consider. So that was never a debate an or any that? Pardon? What would be a year like that you? Well,
1: I can say it couldn't the, happen after that, like ninety A.D.
0: Or well, you'd have uh, some it be believe ninety A.D. That'd
1: be way too.
0: There, there are some scholars that believe that John wrote up until uh, the latest one at ninety six A.D. Uh, I differ with that. I believe the entire New Testament was written before seventy A.D. And that uh, you know it was. I believe all the the apostles, except for John, were killed before 70 A.D., and that uh, all the New Testament was completed. But I'm saying the the late the the latest scholarship, John dies somewhere in the 90s, and so some put uh, the writings of John, you know, at that period of time, like like in Revelation. But I'm saying there's mm-hmm. nothing there's nothing after that, you know. So the point is,
1: though, from your viewpoint, that it should mention something about the destruction of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If it was after Uh, 70 AD, you should have some in there about it. I should have.